Hey, if you want to open up uh, your Bibles to Daniel 7, we will at least start there. I can't promise that we're going to end in Daniel 7, but we'll at least start there. And I'm going to read starting uh, in verse one, but I'll point you, uh, I'll point to verses and kind of name them as we go, because I'll be skipping around through chapter seven, just to kind of get a flavor of it. So Daniel chapter seven, and I'll be reading, uh, starting in verse one here. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Then you skip to verse three. And four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked and its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Verse five, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise and devour much flesh. Then skip to verse uh, 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And then lastly, in verse 15, and as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. And then finally, verse 18, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So we will be taking a bit of an excursion this week out away from our continuous exposition of Daniel uh, to try to get a handle on prophecy. And the reason we're going to do that is because, uh, as you just saw, the text that we read um, has a lot of stuff going on in it that if we don't, I'm afraid if we don't stop and figure out what's going on, we might just start coasting and eventually we won't know where we got or how we got there and You'll just be taking my word for things instead of kind of applying your own brain to the text and, and making sense of it. So before we get into the text and start uh, expounding it and explaining it, part of what we're going to do is just go over some general principles of how do we understand and apply prophecy. Um, on, on our way over here tonight, my wife and I, we drove in her car. And the reason we did that is because she will have you know that my car is not a safe car to drive in. The reason my car is not safe is because whenever it makes a noise or a light turns on or anything like that, as long as the car will turn on and keep driving, I won't take it in, I won't get it checked, I will just keep driving it. The only thing I put in my car is gas. <laughs> and sometimes, when we're, ex- when we're going through scripture, you can treat prophecy a bit like that. As long as you can keep your head down and you can keep moving and you can get to something that's familiar and scripture won't confuse you too much and all the basics still make sense, you're, you're prone to skip over it and not make sense of it, right? But I'm going to encourage you in the next at least couple weeks to to open up the hood, get under the hood, and be familiar with at least the parts of what's going on. Not so that you can become a mechanic of the text or become a preacher, but so that you can understand at least what's happening and how things fit together. That's at least the goal of this time. So with that being said, uh, let's do a little bit of review, maybe some review, maybe some new information. uh, And then we'll try to apply that broadly to the book of Daniel. Uh, I might ask for some participation here. If you remember back to just generally when we've talked about things or possibly the hermeneutics class, 
Do you remember generally what things we're trying to pay attention to when we're looking for hermeneutics or what are good interpretive principles that we're trying to apply to the text of scripture? What are things that we're looking for in the text? Feel free to just shout them out if you if they come to your mind. Don't let the crowd participation backfire on me. Themes. Themes. Okay. Themes. I'm going to write these things down so we have them. Themes. Timing. Yes, I'll write that down. I think I know what you mean by that. I like this. Timing. Context. Context. Okay. Ah, yes. Other passages. I'll say just other texts. What other things are we looking for? Even if it seems obvious, feel free to shout it out. <laughs> okay, I'm going to throw a few other things on the board. If, you, if anything pops in your mind as we go through this, feel free to shout them out. So we have a little bit of these things. So we have the context, which I'm taking that to mean what the text itself is saying, both the immediate context and the broader book context. Okay. Uh, other texts, uh, what other scripture says about that thing. Generally, scriptures that come before it but sometimes scriptures that come after it that interpret that text. Uh, we also want to pay attention to generally timing, which I might ask you to elaborate on a little bit. Are you talking about the redemptive historical arc timing or like history itself? What do you, what do you mean when you say timing? Um, yeah, specifically like the timing of when it's supposed to be fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. So like when is it told and when should it come to pass? Yeah. So remember, we have a whole canon of scripture starting in Genesis, ending in Revelation. And where things happen on that timeline is pretty important because sometimes things refer to other things on the timeline. And the text itself doesn't tell you where necessarily it's referring to. But after the events happen, it becomes a little bit more clear what's going on. So timing is really important for that. Um, and then the last piece, and I'll just, I'll just put this broadly in here, um, would be the redemptive historical timing specifically. So we look at all the text in the canon. Let's say if you look at them on a timeline... You'll look at all things as they relate to the cross of Christ and the resurrection. Okay? This happens generally, for most of the Bible, it happens after the texts are written. And for some texts, like the epistles and things like that, they're, they're, they're written after the timing of the cross. But most of the Bible takes place and is written before the cross. And so a lot of things that are confusing before the cross become clear afterwards. And so we want to keep in mind, where does the book that we're reading or the thing that it's talking about happen in relation to the cross? So the redemptive historical arc of scripture as well. There are things, hermeneutical principles, these are good general ones to keep in mind when you're reading any text of scripture. There are also some specific ones we want to keep in mind with prophecy. And those are things like what we just read. For example, you'll see something called symbolism. Um, if I misspell something right, don't be bothered by it. Symbolism, I could have misspelled that. Um, this is like when it says uh, there is a lion that has eagle's wings and then the wings are ripped off, right? This is not saying that there is an animal newly created that's a lion with wings coming out of it and then this animal is somehow maimed. It's talking or symbolizing something and that symbolism is important for understanding the text itself. Now symbolism is important for prophecy, but symbolism is not something you should be employing. For example, if you're reading about uh, Samuel, or first Samuel, are reading about David versus Goliath, and you're talking about Goliath being a giant. That symbolism, that's not symbolism, right? That's a real person. Narrative does not employ symbolism, but prophecy does. OK? 
Okay, so you'll see symbolism in prophecy, which is why I pointed out. And then how we understand symbolism, we want to talk about, let's say, how other texts, how other prophecies have been fulfilled. So I might just call this, we, we generally talk about other texts, but in prophecy, we want to specifically look at other prophetic fulfillment. Other prophetic fulfillment. So generally other texts, but as we look at prophecy, we're going to ask the question, how was other prophecies, how did those employ symbolism? How did those prophecies come to completion? And how does that help us understand the current symbolism that this prophecy is using? Okay. So these are all things we want to keep in mind. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of touch on some of these things. Uh, the last one that I want to talk about a little bit, and we've already mentioned a little bit, is timing. Sometimes in prophecy, a weird thing happens with timing. So when you're reading Judges, for example, we read Judges just this last year. Uh, the timing is sometimes not, you're not so sure where chronologically the stories are happening in relation to one another. But it's generally clear in one story that these events are moving one after the other after the other, right? They tell a linear story. Most of the uh, stories we tell in our culture are linear timing-wise, right? Prophecy, time is still there, it's still present. But the prophet is a lot less clear on what is taking place, how it's taking place, when it's taking place, okay? I want to give you an example of this. So I'm going to just call this, uh, I'm going to say the timing is sometimes questionable in prophecies. That doesn't mean that the prophet is intentionally being unclear, but the prophet often sees into the future multiple events happening at the same time that only later become clear happen at different periods in time. And so I've just said that. So let's turn to a text where that happens so you don't just take my word for it. And this is one you might be familiar with. We've talked about this before. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 61. And if you know what I'm going to say next when we get to Isaiah 61, that's wonderful. I want you to be there at this point. And if not, no worries. We're going to go over it. Isaiah 61. <clears throat> so Isaiah's writing shortly before Daniel. He writes about the exile that Daniel experiences. But in Isaiah 61, you have this prophecy that's taking place. I'm going to just read verse 1 of Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bring, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisoner to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. So if you're reading Isaiah 61, you're reading all these verses together. If you're a reader and you don't have any other indication of timing, you're generally going to say, oh, these events are all going to take place sequentially, right? The proclamation of liberty, the destruction of God's enemies, the day of vengeance of our God, and then the rebuilding of the city, right? These are things that in Isaiah happen kind of in repetition. What only becomes clear later is, is what, what Jesus makes clear is that some of these events don't happen within the span of thousands of years of one another. So I want to look at that text, for example, Luke chapter 4. Jesus reads this exact same text. You might be familiar with this in the synagogue. In 
And just in case you think I'm playing some trickery, keep your finger in Isaiah 61. You can back check this in a second. This is uh, Luke chapter 4 and verse uh, 18. So Jesus just has gotten up. He reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. Then it says, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of the synagogue are fixed on him. Verse 21, he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay. So Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah, stops at the, at the place where it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you'll notice in Isaiah, uh, that's the beginning of verse two, first line. And the second line of verse two, Jesus doesn't read. And he doesn't say it's been fulfilled. And we know that only later does it become clear that Jesus is going to come with vengeance. Right? That's what Revelation tells us and, and Paul tells us. But Jesus makes it clear his first coming is one of proclamation of peace. The second coming is one of vengeance. But when Isaiah is writing, it looks like Isaiah is talking about the same sequence of events happening. But we at least know from our timing that that at least at this point in time, 2,000 years separated from one another. Does this make sense? So the prophet is telling us about timing, but is not so concerned with an awareness of when those events happen in relation to one another. They usually just give the prophecy as they understand it. Okay, so Isaiah, this is one example of that. It's called a near and a far prediction of a prophecy, that there's a near thing that is, they're talking about and a far thing, and they kind of talk about them as one and the same event. So you see this in prophecy. So that might all seem confusing or, or strange, uh, but at the end of the day, the one thing I want us to walk away with, generally with a grip on prophecy, is the, let's say, the practical nature of prophecy, okay? And this is uh, maybe where I want to spend the rest of the time, at least tonight, because we'll, we'll go into some of these other texts in the coming weeks uh, that are important for understanding these principles. But at least for tonight, we want to look at particularly the, uh, what I would want to call the pragmatic importance of prophecy. And that's actually kind of the general, for this first time around, we're talking about the purpose of prophecy. What goal does it serve for its audience? And I'm going to group this all in here because I'm assuming when you guys saw context written up here that you didn't mention these other pieces, but... Remember, in the context, there's an author. The author is writing to an audience. The audience is taking place in a specific point in history. All this is part of the context of what's taking place. Okay? Prophecy isn't just some pie-in-the-sky dream that some author writes in order to confuse his immediate audience and confuse interpreters for thousands of years. Okay? That's not the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is much more practical than that. That doesn't mean that prophecy is easy to understand in all of its facets. But there are some things you cannot, you cannot misunderstand about prophecy, okay? So in order to see that, I want to do kind of a dual comparison of the two most confusing books from each testament. One we're studying right now is Daniel. And the, and the most confusing book to interpret in the New Testament, many would argue, is Revelation, okay? There are many things to debate in both of these texts. But what I want you to at least see tonight is the practical importance, the practical clarity of both of these texts. So uh, for Daniel... We're going to look just briefly right back where we just were in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, you remember we kind of skipped around in the, in the beasts where it talks about those, the, the four beasts that are raised up. It talks about all the different beasts. There's another beast that has horns. This is in verse 8 of chapter 7. And then I want you to start with me in verse 9. And as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was pure like wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels are a burning fire. A stream of fire issued, and it came out from before him. 
a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And then again, I'm just going to skip down to verse 14. And to him, this is the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Okay? Whatever else is going on in Daniel 7, okay, there's beasts, there's beasts with wings being torn off, there's beasts with horns, there's a little horn that's more devious than the other horns. There's all kinds of stuff happening early on in Daniel 7. But what you can't miss, no matter how confusing the rest of that is, is how clear parts of it are, right? One main idea in Daniel 7, Jesus, we come to know later, I'm going to say the Ancient of Days, the one riding on the clouds, is victorious over all the kingdoms. At the end of the day, he wins, everyone serves him. Crystal clear. As confusing as everything else is, this is the one clear thing you walk away with. Now think about the audience and the, and the authorship of Daniel. Daniel is written to the people of God while they're in exile in Babylon. And although there's going to be strange visions that are going to happen from chapter 7 through chapter 12, although there's going to be angels coming and there's going to be some spiritual warfare happening, there's going to be all kinds of symbolic language, and there's going to be a very confused Daniel when it's all said and done, right? Daniel says, even here in verse 15, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me, okay? And then he goes, can you please explain this to me? He talks to the, to the angel who just showed him these visions. So what becomes clear in Daniel is even though Daniel doesn't know everything that's going on, Daniel does know one thing for sure, and this is clear in Daniel, is that God wins at the end of the day. He is victorious and reigning and ruling. So that's very practical if you're in exile because you need to know that whatever empire comes after this empire, however bad it gets, however enslaved we get, we need to know that, that Yahweh is still in control of this whole thing. That's a very comforting thing for an exile. Okay? We're going to see that same thing in Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation. It's at the very, it's the very last book in the New Testament. So if you found weights and measures and things like that, you've gone a bit too far. <laughs> I know. Um, and uh, Revelation is like, like Daniel. There, it's a mixed genre book, right? There's some narrative, there's some epistle, there's some things like that. And this is, uh, I'm going to read just starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to skip around a little bit. So chapter 1, verse 1. You see, uh, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the thing that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So this is the context of Revelation, right? And then John writes some letters to the seven churches. Uh, and then, I don't know, let's go, let's go to the middle of the book of Revelation. Let's say chapter 10. Okay. Chapter 10, let's start reading in... I don't know, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs are a pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God, would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now you might be saying, what on earth 
is going on with this angel. He's got a foot in the land, a foot in the sea. He's swearing to heaven. He's crying out with the sound of seven trumpets. Okay? That could be confusing. If you look at the next chapter, chapter 11, there's two witnesses that are prophesying and then they're put to death. And then after a while, they're brought back to life and they come prophesying again. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in Revelation. But there is one message that you cannot miss if you're reading Revelation. And that is when you get to Revelation 19. And undoubtedly, I know because we've looked at this text several times uh, ourselves as a group and even in in private study, I know we've looked at this uh, text before with several of you. Um, Revelation 19, verse 11. This is an unmistakable message. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, and they were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So whatever else is going on in Revelation, there's one clear message, one clear theme, one clear idea you have to keep in mind. Revelation written to the exiled people of God, dispersed throughout Asia Minor, generally under the timeline of persecution, right? You might debate which emperor or which time of persecution, but generally they're in in a dangerous state. The audience is receiving this message, they're getting it. And John is not writing this to confuse them. Why is John writing Revelation? To give them a clear vision that God is still in control despite all of the beasts and all of the war and all of the witnesses and all of the persecution. All of that stuff is happening and we can study it, but we shouldn't lose the forest for the trees. We shouldn't lose the main clear idea, the unmistakable idea for all of the other things. That's something to keep in mind, right? When we're going through Daniel, when we get... You might not forget this by next week or the following week, but when we're in chapter 11, you're going to be thinking, what is up with all the symbolism? What is the purpose of this? Remember this, the clear, unambiguous teaching of Daniel is that God is in control. He reigns. That's the thing you have to keep in mind as we get into the weeds. And we're going to get into the weeds. I'm excited about the weeds. I hope you are too. But that's the one main thing you have to keep in mind when we're we're studying these texts. Okay? So... In, in recap, the two most confusing books, arguably in the, in the two different Testaments, Daniel and Revelation, written to the exiled people of God, there's all kinds of strange symbolism, but at the end of the day, the overall victory of God is an impossible, impossible thing to miss in either of these books, okay? And that helps us to keep our head on straight because at the end of the day, prophecy is practical. If you're an exiled person of God living out in this persecution, you might be tempted towards, I don't know, maybe a modern worldview like nihilism. Nothing matters and God isn't there and I can just do whatever I want. Because if God was there, surely none of this would be happening. And John writes and says, no, 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 God is still up there. Hold fast to the faith. Stand firm. Why? Because he is coming in victory. And whatever, however bad it looks now, it won't be that bad in the end. John writes, Daniel writes the same kind of message to his people in Babylon. And I think that helps us keep at least the main thing, the main thing when we're looking at prophecy. Uh, so with that being said, uh, maybe just like a general arcing timeline of the next two weeks, Next week, we're going to look at how these uh, patterns take place in a, in a pretty common prophecy, but one that I think is often maybe shallowly understood by Christians, which is Isaiah 7, the, the prediction of uh, the Emmanuel, the child to be uh, born to the king, or to the virgin. 
So you have that prophecy. We're going to look at that one in particular next week. The following week, we're going to look at the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, which is where Jesus says things like what Daniel says here. He says, and the sun will be darkened and the moon will lose its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the whole earth will shake. And then he says, uh, and then, you know, he just turns to his disciples and says, do you understand? (laughs) And they're like, no, we don't understand. We didn't understand what you were talking about earlier when it was easy. We don't understand now. So we're going to try to look at that and see if we can understand with more revelation and more understanding, more, more uh, insight than they had uh, with the counsel of God and his spirit. So we're going we're gonna to look at that. And then we're going to hop with, with both those things in place. We're going to hop back into Daniel with the goal that we have at least hand grips so that as we're fumbling around in the dark, we can at least find our way a little bit. Maybe we'll bump, a, bump our knee a few places. But generally speaking, we'll be able to find our way through the text. Uh, in the next couple of weeks. So that's the goal. With that being said, let's pray together and then we'll break off into discussion for some of that time. Father, I thank you for your word. I uh, thank you particularly for uh, even the difficult parts of it, Lord, the things that we can wrestle with and, and lose ourselves in study. Uh, Lord, it's a sweet experience to, to dive into your word and uh, be uh, amazed and awestruck and, uh, and, and so, so inspired by the beauty of your, your creation the beauty of your revelation. Lord, you are not uh, a simple God by any means. Uh, you are uh, profound and complex and uh, so amazing and so, so wise. And so we pray that as we try to understand your, your word, as we submit our hearts to it and submit our minds to it, that you would give us insight and you would give us understanding and you would allow us to uh, come before you humble uh, and teachable um, and, and, and not in any kind of arrogant way, but Lord, that we would seek to understand your word as you've given it to us. And uh, would you be pleased to meet us there and, and give us understanding and insight into your word. We pray this all in your name. Amen.